Well, we are really getting into the, into the Christmas spirit today. It's the first Sunday of December. It's the, the second week of Advent. We started that last week. And last week, Pastor Steve finished up a sermon series on the book of Acts. I think it was six weeks that uh, he called Devoted and Led. And what we did through that sermon series is, is Pastor Steve talked, used that early church in Acts some 2,000 years ago, um, used the experiences of, of that early church to call us today um, here in Greenbrier into something, something much deeper. And I, I love that we just got finished talking about that because I think it sets us up really, really well for what we're going to continue to talk about kind of leading up leading up to Christmas. Uh, as we look today at, at, at Romans chapter 15 that, that Megan read for us, we're going to continue to recognize that God in His great power is calling us into something. And last week, uh, we lit the first candle of Advent. Um, and I, I, won't, I won't get into and, and rehash exactly what Advent means, but just really quickly... Um, the, the Advent candles, the Advent season, symbolizes that we are leading up to Christmas. And when we light these candles every week, and we, we lit the first one last week and we'll light the, the first and second one today, it reminds us that, that just as the people of God, just as the, the Israelites from that time when, in the Old Testament that we read about to when Jesus came in the New, um, while they waited for a Messiah in the darkness... Advent reminds us that we also wait. We wait between the promise of a Savior and Jesus coming the first time and Jesus coming again um, for the second time in the future. It reminds us that with each passing day, with every day, we get closer and closer to the fulfilled hope that we have um, in, in Jesus Christ and in His resurrection and in Him coming again. So last week, we lit the first candle that symbolized hope. Well, maybe. We lit a candle that symbolized that that coming kingdom, that Christ coming again, will bring the fulfilled kingdom of God that brings us hope. And today, we light the second candle that stands for peace. That in that coming kingdom, when Christ comes again, he will be bringing to all the world, to all the cosmos, hope and peace. Let's pray. Dear God, this morning as we turn to um, the book of Romans, and as we talk about your peace, God, may, may you remind us that as we wait for the coming kingdom, God, as we wait for the promise that you gave us, that you will come again, that you will establish your kingdom on earth, fulfill that, that as we wait for that coming promise, God, may we be reminded that in the meantime that we have work to do here. God, as, as you promise us hope, as you promise us peace, God, we are to be the light in the world of hope and of peace. God, this morning, may you transform us. May you make us more Christ-like in all that we are and all that we do, so that we can be that hope and that peace to the, uh, to the world around us. Amen. Well, peace, this second Advent candle, is one of the overarching points of emphasis per, for Paul all throughout the book of Romans. And even as I was writing that, as I was preparing the sermon, and I, I wrote that down, that peace is a main theme of, of Romans. It kind of sounded funny to me, because when I think of Romans, I don't 
and you, you may be this way too, I don't necessarily think of the word peace, but instead we, we really view the book of Romans as one of Paul's greatest works on salvation. You know, we talk about the Roman road to salvation. He really lays out what it means to be a, a follower of Christ. Um, and, but what is really going on in this letter that, that Paul writes to the, to the Romans or, or these letters that he writes to the church in Rome is, is he's writing them to teach them how to live together as the body of Christ. All throughout the book of Romans, all 16 chapters, Paul is teaching this church how to be Christ-like. And especially starting in chapter 14, if you were to go back, um, and then through verse 13 of chapter 15 that, that Megan read for us this morning, Paul's main topic, specifically in, in those chapters and, and going forward, his main topic is he's teaching uh, this early church how to cooperate together. He's teaching them how, how to look like Christ and how, how to be one body. He's telling them just because there had never really been a Christian church before. There never had been. This is the, the first uh, Christian church that, that Paul is writing to as he writes to the Corinthians and to the Romans. And he's writing to the, these very first congregations that are coming out. And so he's teaching them how they're supposed to be the church and the communities that they're in. And we can see when we read the book of Romans, but when we go to some of the other letters that, that Paul writes, that these Christians are really struggling, especially here in Rome. There were these the people of the new church that had grown up in the Jewish faith, and they were wanting to ask the Gentiles that are joining them, they were wanting to ask them to abide by Jewish laws. They were wanting to, to keep the old laws of the, of the Old Testament. And then these Gentiles that are joining um, the, the people of the Jewish faith in this new Christian religion, uh, they were bringing their own expectations with what religion and what belief should be. And so at every turn, these early churches are hitting this tension, they're hitting this complication where people believe that, that their beliefs should be superimposed on, on the other people. So the letter from Paul to the, to the church in Rome is to assure that congregation that this faith, this following Christ, is for Jews, and it's for Gentiles, and it's for everyone in, in, in between. And Paul spends all of chapter 14 and all of chapter 15 telling the church that they have to accept each other for who they are. They have to find a peace among them. Now, I'll be honest, and I, I usually am um, to a fault sometimes when I just tell, tell on myself like this, but whenever I read the book of Romans... I'm just, I'm just not always thrilled to preach on, on the book of Romans because I'm not the smartest cat in the world, and uh, it's, it's kind of hard for me to understand sometimes. And I, So I'll, I'll go and I'll read something that Paul wrote in the book of Romans, and I'll be like, man, I just don't even understand what that said at all. And so what I'll have to do is I'll have to read it, I'll have to go to the, the internet or to some trusted commentaries. I'll have to have somebody else tell me what Paul meant. And then I can go back to, to that passage that I was reading. I'll read it again, and uh, maybe then it'll make a little bit more sense to me. And I can kind of, the, the cobwebs kind of disappear, and, and God begins to speak in that. And that happens a lot. And with this passage specifically, I had to do this kind of over and over before it really started um, to click for me and really started to, uh, to make sense. And I had to go back 
And I think we always need to do this, especially with these letters from Paul. But I had to go back and I had to read this passage that we've read this morning. I had to read it in the context of what came before, uh, chapters 13 and 14, because he really kind of begins that section there, um, where he's pointing out to the, the many differences that there are between the people in the church. And as I went and I read that context of chapter 13 and 14 and, and 15, and as I, as I read some commentaries that, that I really trust, I began to find that over and over, over and over, so many different biblical scholars and teachers of, of the Bible see this passage, this Advent passage of Scripture, as a passage where Paul defines what peace is supposed to look like in the church. He gives us a definition of who we're supposed to be. While we're in this tension, while we're in, in this tension between Christ coming the first time and, and dying and being resurrected and, and then this promise that He's going to come again, while we're in this tension between, while we're in this darkness, Paul gives us this definition of, of who we're supposed to be. And just like we've been promised that Christ, when He comes again, will bring us hope and bring us peace, Paul is telling this church in Rome that they're to be the same things to the world around them. That we're supposed to be the same thing to the world around us. To be hope and to be peace. And it seems to me, if we look around at the church today, we still see these same issues that Paul is writing about to the church in Rome going on uh, all, all around us. We see that, that when the church and when followers of Christ are supposed to be agents of peace, when we're supposed to be agents of hope in the, in the world around them, sometimes, and not all the time, but sometimes, that can be far from the case. In fact, sometimes, and I think we see it every day, but sometimes not only can Christians not be agents of peace in the world, but if we're not careful, we can actually be the opposite of it. We can find people, and, and we fall into this trap ourselves, and I, I definitely do. But we may claim to be followers of Christ while we, whether intentionally or whether it's intentional or by accident, we may be stoking the flames of divisiveness and turbulence in the, in the world around us. I mean, just think about it. Think about the global body of believers, the, the church all around the world. We can't even agree among ourselves. We can't even agree among, among what, is, what is correct and what is right among ourselves. We have denominations because we look at the Bible and we interpret it um, in different ways. But even within denominations, even within the same churches, denominations and churches are splitting because we feel the need to plant our feet in the ground and on certain things say, I'm right and everyone else is wrong. And I fall into this temptation as much as anybody else. I think my wife will be the first to tell you that if you disagree with me, until you can absolutely prove me wrong, we should both just assume that I'm right, and it's going to make it a lot easier on everybody. <clears throat> and we all kind of fall into that. We put our foot down and we say, I'm right, and everybody else is wrong. And can I say that when I read this passage from Paul, when I read the, the book of Romans... I realized that we have done that as a church, as a body of believers. We've become the opposite of peace because we've been, become obsessed with being right. 
We've become obsessed with putting our foot down, drawing a line in the sand somewhere where Jesus doesn't draw that line. And we do that because we have a really poor understanding of truly what peace is. I think that we've defined peace in our heads and kind of in our lives together. We've defined peace as conformity. We, we may think, we may think in our minds that, that peace will finally come, peace will only come when we've convinced everyone in the world to have the same view of the world that we do and everyone agrees with what we think. We've, we've convinced ourselves that that's the definition of peace when everyone is in full agreement. So what happens when we, when we view peace that way is, is that mission that we were given uh, by, by Jesus in, in Matthew 28, that great commission, our mission to take the gospel into all the nations, that mission transforms into something else. When we say that everybody has to agree with me, what, what that mission to take the gospel into all nations has turned into is that we are supposed to take our theology into all the nations. And we're supposed to take our opinions into all the nations. And, and we're supposed to take our politics into all the nations. And when that finally happens, when we take our theology and everyone believes the same thing, uh, the, the same nitpicky things that I believe, and when we take our opinions and we take our politics into all the nations, when that happens, the whole world will be at agreement. And that's when the world will finally be at peace. And man, I got to tell you, that sounds really difficult doesn't it? And I know that the Bible tells us that through God all things are possible, but I mean really that sounds not feasible to get everybody to agree on everything. To, to, and that's the definition that we have of peace. And we can infer when we read the book of Romans, and we can infer this pretty easily because Paul's specifically addressing this issue, but we can see that the church in Rome is facing this same temptation this same temptation to, to make their opinions and make their theologies the only things that matter. They were defining peace the exact same way. And all throughout the book of Romans, in all 16 chapters, Paul is giving the same advice over and over to them in different ways. And he's telling them that peace is not found in conformity. We see it here in this passage that we just read. If you were to keep reading, I had, I had Megan stop at, at verse 7. Um, just to kind of keep it brief, but, but verse 8 and 9 says this, For I tell you that Christ has come, or become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the ancestors and that of the Gentiles, uh, given to the ancestors, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In that scripture, and in so many different scriptures throughout the book of Romans, Paul is making it clear that the Gentiles are just as welcome in this new church as anyone else. And that these, these Gentiles, the, the people that, that aren't of that Jewish faith, when it comes to this new, this new church, this new, uh, this new religion, he, he makes it clear that they don't have to agree and they don't have to follow Jewish law to become a part of the Christian church because Christ came for both Jews and Gentiles alike. Now, he doesn't call, if you were looking at the chapter before, he doesn't call those that are coming from the Jewish faith, he doesn't say that you must leave all those practices behind. He says very clearly in chapter 14 that it's kind of up to the convictions of the individual. 
But you aren't to have your own convictions and, and to superimpose, to impose them on, on the others. He recognizes in, in chapter 13 that there's going to be some different opinions on the diet that people eat. Some are going to elect to be vegetarian. Some are going to elect to stay away from, from foods that are deemed to be unclean by, by the Jewish faith. Um, there's going to be some people in this church, in this new church, that have different opinions on Sabbath keeping. And what that means, and, and, and what that means to, to keep the Sabbath. And, and then there's several other things that he talks about as, as differences of opinion within this church in Rome. And never once, never once does he say that anyone should be forced into agreement or conformity with someone else. Because Paul wasn't uncomfortable. He wasn't uncomfortable at all with differences of opinion within the Christian community. He never says that to have peace and to have unity, we all must have the exact same ideas. In fact, he's always actively fighting against that idea. And he, he recognized, and this is key, this is key to who Paul was. He recognized that he was called by God, by Christ, he was called to be an apostle, a Jewish apostle that was called to go not to the people of Jewish faith, but to the Gentiles. He recognized that, that his mission that he was given so clearly by God was to go to the people that were, were totally different for him. And he recognized that he would have to not only put up with differences in opinion and differences of ideas in this, in this mission that he was given, but he was also being called to defend the right, defend the right of the Gentiles to be a part of the Christian community. He was called to defend their right to be different. When was the last time in a conversation that we defended the right of somebody to think differently than we had? Listen, believe it or not, sometimes, very rarely, and I know it's, it could be hard to believe, but sometimes at church we may walk on eggshells. And some things may, may be left kind of unsaid or kind of inferred because we are all scared, not just as pastors, but as, as people within a church. We may be scared that someone, someone won't agree with us. And everyone in this room right now is thinking, oh, you know, don't do, don't do that on behalf of them. You know, say it. They need to hear the truth. And what we all don't realize is that we're probably the ones that would disagree when we're saying that. And even in our conversations in the church foyer, we all kind of try to stay away from the big topics, don't we? I mean, we're going to go out, we're going to go out there and we're going to shake hands, kiss babies, and we're going to all ask everybody how their week was going, but we're going to stay away from those big topics that may kind of divide us, that, that we may disagree on a little bit. Or even worse, maybe we're, we're in a conversation with somebody in the foyer and we're asking these leading questions, trying to figure out if they really agree with us or not. You know, you know how it goes. You, if you haven't done it, then you've had it done to you. And if, you've, if you haven't had it done to you, then you're the one that's doing it. So, <laughs> so but you, may, you know how you feel somebody out. Do they agree with me on this? You know? and, and so you're trying to figure out, are they right like I'm right or are they wrong? Do I need to kind of keep them at, at arm's length? And Paul would say, he would tell us that that is absolutely in, an insane thing to do. He would say that these differences in opinion are not our dividing lines. They aren't where we draw that line in the sand, but instead, when we emphasize them in the way that we do, 
what that, it causes these things to be a distraction because they are non-essential. And that word is very important. They are non-essential arguments that have become unproductive and unhealthy to the body of Christ. Now, in a second, we're going to talk about what is essential. We're going to talk about what is essential. But I truly and honestly believe that if Paul were to write a letter to the church in America today, man, I think he would have some devastating words for us. I think he would have a a devastating message telling us that we have let our our bickering and we have let our arguing arguing over over the non-essentials get in the way, get in the way of the gospel that we were sent to proclaim. Because we have defined peace as conformity rather than harmony. Verse 5 and 6 of of the passage of chapter 15 and Romans reads this way. And I'm I'm reading out of the NRSV, and I'll tell you why here in just a second. But yours may read a little differently if you're in the NIV. But 5 and 6 say, May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony. Some versions may say unity. Harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. So that together you may with one voice... Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some, some translations, the NIV specifically, translate that word harmony um, to unity. But I think the goal and the, the outcome that, that Paul is after is exactly the same. But I, I really like the NRSV and its use of that word harmony. And the reason I like that is because when you look at the original language, which I can't read, I have to basically... I have to let somebody else tell me what the original language says. But when you look at the original language, and it says this phrase in verse 6, with one voice, the word that is used for that phrase, with one voice, is a word that is used to describe harmonious choral singing, like a choir, like singing together. And so to translate that as harmonious choral singing, the, the word harmony rather than unity really, really kind of brings this, this poetic emphasis on what Paul is trying to, uh, trying to say here. Now, you may know nothing about music, and that's okay. Um, I don't either. <laughs> I thought more of y'all would laugh at that. <laughs> it's fine. My, my job's to do the music if nobody knows, so... <laughs> But I, I'd love to, uh, to dig into some music theory this morning, and we could be all here all day, we could talk about thirds, and we could talk about triads, and, and blah, 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 and we could all be bored, and we would all know less than when we started, because I don't know anything about it either. But I, w- I want you to imagine with me, if, if you would this morning, imagine an orchestra or a choir. And if we were to take our definition of unity and peace and we were to say that peace equals conformity, where everyone thinks exactly the same, where every, every, everyone has the exact same opinion, then we may imagine that orchestra or that choir as this body of musicians who are, who are playing the exact same note. And yes, if, if all of those instruments or all of those singers were to sing the exact same note, um, a wall of sound would come out of them that was just overwhelming. And it would be loud. And it would be hard to ignore. It would be this huge wall of sound, but it wouldn't be beautiful. In fact, it'd be kind of gross. You might be like, it's not impressive. They're all just playing the same note. 
But instead, beauty is found in music when there's different voices. In a choir, you have the baritone, and you have the bass singing, and you have a tenor, and you have a soprano and an alto, or, or in an orchestra, there's, there's tubas that are playing the, playing the low part, and they're kind of keeping everybody chugging along, and, and they're playing that low part, and the, the trumpets are taking the medley, me, melody, and, and the percussion is in the back, and they're keeping everybody marching along, and the, the piccolos are in the front, and they're making your ear bleed just a little bit, but it's still pretty, you know, it's, it's still pretty. And, and when you take all of those notes, when you take all of those voices and you take those, those instruments and, and when they're led, this is key, when they're led by a skilled conductor that has a vision for what's going on, what you're left with is one sound, one voice that can only be described as miraculous. That conductor has taken all of those voices and turn them into something that, that is so much greater than they could ever be just on their own or if they were playing the same note. That same thing should be said of Christ and his church. Christ, as the conductor, he takes our talents, he takes our different opinions, he takes our different theologies, he takes our disagreements, he takes our politics, he takes all of these things And with all of these voices, he creates a beautiful harmony, a masterpiece. A masterpiece that becomes a beacon of light in the world. A masterpiece that that represents for all of humanity what hope and peace and joy and love can be. A harmony, a unity a peace where all of our voices have come together as one. I, I just got done um, leading a class for our, our district on the, the theology and the doctrine of the Church of the Nazarene. And uh, at, the, at the end of it, I, I mean, we're talking about specifically in this class what the Church of the Nazarene believes. So it's very easy when you're talking about what you believe to say this is what's right and everybody else is wrong. So at the end of the class... I, um, I used this example of a fleet of ships when talking about different denominations. And different denominations, they may have different theologies, they may have just mi- uh, minor kind of differences in beliefs, but we're all part of the same fleet. The ships may look different, they may be bigger, they may be smaller, they may be, they may be shaped different, they may uh, ha- have different colors, they may, they may look totally different from each other, but we're all a part of the same fleet, traveling in the same direction, guided by the same wind of the Holy Spirit. That togetherness, that unity, is a whole lot more beautiful than if we were just to say, we're just all on one boat. We're all singing the same note, of the same song. Paul recognizes that this feat that he's asking of of the church in Rome, he recognizes that, that both for the church but especially for the world, it's only possible when we are unified by Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So he leaves them with this prayer in verse 13. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's reminding them in that verse 13 that on their own, this goal is impossible. 
Because only with God, only when being led by by the Holy Spirit, can a church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles, can a church that's made up of of men and women, and and I'm about to start quoting Galatians chapter 2, that's made up of Jews and Gentiles and men and women and and slave or free, and and let's keep going with it, and Baptists and Nazarenes and Methodists and Episcopals and Presbyterians and, and Catholics and Democrats and Republicans, only with God can a church made up of all of those people become one beautiful voice of peace together? Amen? Now, I know what you're thinking, and we're about to, to wrap it up, but I can, almost, I can almost literally hear everyone kind of screaming the same question. Okay, if, if, we're, if we're allowed to be different, if we should celebrate our differences in opinions and, and theologies and, and politics, then where do we draw the line? Right? That's the question everybody asks. Where, does, where do we draw the line of, of what is essential and what is not essential? Where does, where does disagreement become actually anti-Christ with, within the church? And for those of you that know me really well, uh, this is going to be really hard to believe that I'm, I'm, I'm about to say this, but uh, John Wesley had an idea about this. And I, I go back to John Wesley in every sermon to the point that it actually annoys me, so I apologize. But in a sermon that, that John Wesley gave on the unity of the body of Christ around the world. He said this, he said, though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike? May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion? And in that same sermon, he said that when someone asks to be a part of his church, there's only a few questions that he asks them when they want to come in unity together with the body of Christ. He said there's four questions. Number one, is your heart right with God? Number two, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Number three, do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And number four, is your heart right towards your neighbor? It was as simple as that. Are you living your life for Christ and loving your neighbor in the way that God loves you? There wasn't any kind of theological or or political quiz to to enter the church. There wasn't this litmus test to see um, if you don't believe this one thing about what the Holy Spirit is, then you can't be a part part of the church. But instead, like Paul did with this letter in Romans, John Wesley recognized that a love for God and a love for others were the only two things essential to the gospel message. So that's where he drew the line. And in our conversations with each other and with other Christians and with people around the world, I hope that that's where we draw the line as well. Because as we inch closer to Christmas, as with each day that comes in December, we get a little bit closer to when Christ uh, was born, as we remind ourselves this month that just as we get closer to Christmas, we're also getting closer to the second coming of Christ, to that fulfilled candle, or that, that fulfilled kingdom, we're lighting candles. <laughs> May we remind ourselves that God has promised us hope, peace, joy, and love. And we're called to be those things in the world around us. May we, may the church be a light in the darkness that just points others towards the kingdom of God. And to do that, I hope that we're reminded that in everything we do, we're called to be peacemakers, not peace breakers.
That we aren't to bicker over the non-essentials, but we are called to be a beacon to the world that we are better when we live in peaceful harmony. I want to leave you with this poem by John Oxenham. I want us to take this with us and kind of have this, this idea at the front of our minds as we, as we leave this place and go uh, this week. But it, it says this, In Christ there is no east or west, in him no south or north, but one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide earth. Join hands then, brothers of the faith, whate'er your race may be, who serves my father as a son is surely kin to me. Let's pray. God, as we inch closer and closer to your coming, God, when you will come again and and these things that you've promised us, God, as, as dark as it may be right now, these things that you promised us will one day be all around the, the world and the, the universe. God, as we recognize that, we recognize our role in it. Lord, we aren't just to sit and wait and sit and do nothing. But God, as we see the darkness in the world, we're to be that candle. A candle that, as we inch closer and closer to that coming, grows brighter and, and brighter and brighter with each passing day. God, may we be peacemakers. Not calling people to conformity, God, but calling people into harmony. God, in the next time that we may have a, a disagreement, may we recognize the voices that are coming together to sing praises to you. God, we thank you so much for who you are, who you've been, and who you will be as you come again. We ask these things in your name. Amen.